The scripture reading today is from James chapter 4, from verses 1 to 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all this morning. Um, For any of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Nick. I'm one of the elders here at Village. I just want to take this opportunity to say if, if you are visiting us today or if you've been at Village a few weeks, you maybe want to find out a little bit more about us or get to know us a little bit better. Um, on our website, there's a section, um, uh, get in touch. So if you go on there, there's a little form you can fill in and, and one of our leaders will be in touch with you over the next week or so. Thanks to um, the uh, demise of an 11-year-old iPad this morning, um, I'm preaching from paper, so um, going old school this morning. So. Um, So thanks to Adam for our reading. We're in James chapter 4 this morning and looking at verses 1 to 12. The New York Times published an opinion piece on the 4th of August this year entitled, What If Humans Just Can't Get Along Anymore? In this admittedly fairly bleak editorial piece, the writer cites how various platforms and technologies originally designed to allegedly connect us are frequently becoming the undoing of human relationships and becoming nothing more than some of the most prominent arenas for conflict, aggression, and the outworking of hatred in our world. The writer asks the question, what if we have hit the limit of our capacity to get along? Are we capable as a species of coordinating our actions at a scale necessary to address the most dire problems that we face? As we look at chapter four of this letter today, James, our writer, I don't think would be surprised if he could see that in the 21st century, people are still asking these questions. 
This questioning around humans' ability to get along isn't a big jump from the question that James is asking us in this chapter. But as we'll see as we work through it this morning, James knows that we never fully had this ability in the first place. As we continue in this short letter this week, we see a continuation of this charge that James has been issuing to us, the church, since the end of chapter one, when he tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And since then, really, James has been unlocking what this looks like in our lives. And although there's a chapter break between where we were last week and, and, and this section here this morning, James is very much mid-flow in his argument and his train of thought following on from the end of chapter three into today's passage. Last week, John unpacked for us how James presents that in this world we are faced with two wisdoms, a worldly wisdom which ultimately comes from hell and a godly wisdom that comes from heaven. And while James didn't go into to too much detail as to what that wisdom says, he left us sure of what it looks like and left us sure that there is only one wisdom that comes from God that is pleasing to him and is good for us. And so we must humbly go to God and ask him for this wisdom that comes only from him. And now in chapter four, we're gonna see another contrast laid out by James, this time between two friendships, friendship with the world and friendship with the gods. And to sort of examine these, James begins with this theme of quarreling and fights or conflict, if you will, in our lives. The fights and the quarrels that he speaks of in this chapter flow from that worldly wisdom that he's just been speaking about in chapter three. So much so that the word covet that we see here in verse two is the same as the word translated as envy in chapter three. See, the disorder and the evil that comes about as a result of the worldly wisdom and selfish ambition that we saw in the previous chapter can be summed up by what James will describe in this chapter as hostility towards God and friendship with the world. Now, I think for me anyway, I don't have to look too far or wait too long to see conflict in my life. We might not think that our lives are filled with conflict on a surface level, but the closer we look, the more we see that conflict is inescapable. Even for us as Christians who live a life overarchingly marked by a peace that surpasses understanding, there are moments and circumstances in our lives where our impulses and our reactions betray us and they reveal something about the original condition of our hearts and our need for Jesus. I wonder when was the last time the tone of your voice was raised in temper? When was the last time your words were slightly more venomous? Or the last time you dished out the dreaded silent treatment? It doesn't take much to invoke these responses in us at times, and we don't have to look far or have a long memory to see that there is conflict in our life. But James doesn't believe that conflict is a standalone aspect of lives lived in this world. As James sees it, fights and quarreling or conflict are merely symptomatic. And James here is using these quarrels and these fights, as he calls them, as, as a diagnostic. For James, conflict and its root in our lives, as we'll see, are the litmus test of where we have placed our friendship. And while all James is, is speaking to here applies to the world as a whole, here he's particularly writing regarding quarrels and fighting taking place in the church in light of what he has just said in chapter three about those who sow peace being those who will reap it. 
And so James asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? And just to remind ourselves once again of what James is doing in this letter, if we turn very briefly to chapter 1, verse 19, we'll see that James is laying out this righteous life to which God has called us and what this is to look like. As disciples of Jesus, our modus operandi is to have changed. As a child of God, your life is no longer to be shaped by you and led by you, by your wants, your desires, and your feelings. Rather, we are to have a life that is shaped by the righteous purposes of the kingdom of God. And as James has been unpacking for us in the following chapters what this looks like, I think here in chapter four, we're reaching the pinnacle of his argument which the letter has been building towards. And using this ever-present trait of conflict in our lives, James is now presenting the difficulty that we all have in successfully living this righteous life that we've been called to. The struggle of living in God's kingdom. Because conflict in James's eyes shows just how deep and just how constant that struggle is. This is a difficult passage this morning. Um, and one writer has said that this is not the case because James is teaching on this topic is unclear, but it's difficult because of just how clear it is. So let me pray for us once more before we continue. Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would help us this morning, um, help us to hear your voice as we open your word. Speak to us, we pray, and help us cast aside anything that would distract us from hearing your voice and what you're saying. By the power of your spirit, we just pray you would break through any barriers, any pride, and our sinfulness, and challenge us, convict us, and encourage us to become ever more like your son. For it's in your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Now, we don't like to think that these things characterize us or that we, we struggle with conflict. Um, and I think it's easy to read this and think almost particularly as believers that we're beyond this, that surely James isn't referring to us. We have the joy of the Lord all the time. We're so polite, we don't fall out with each other. And that hopefully is the case, some of the time at least. But we may be able to keep up a certain facade in certain places at certain times in certain social circles and keep up appearances. But what about in our marriages, in our homes with our siblings? See, when you put selfish sinners together, there's going to be disagreement. And like all things, it's in relationships where these quarrels can be most dangerous. So let's look at verse one. James is asking, what causes these quarrels and conflicts among you? Wonder how often when we find ourselves in conflict or when we're irritated or frustrated that we ourselves are the object of that frustration. The instinctive response, I think, more often than not, is to look to the other person to explain our actions and our feelings and to attribute blame. If they didn't do this, if they hadn't said that, if they weren't there, then I, and you can fill in the blank. And it's that little link, that little, if they didn't do this, then I would have, then I could do, then I could be, that reveals to us the true source of our conflict, as James says in verse one. You see, when you're pursuing your own gain, you find that just about anything or anyone can become an obstacle in your way to achieving that. And everything is always someone else's fault. And so as James continues by expanding his line, of his, his line of questioning, he asks, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? 
James is saying here there is literally a war being fought inside of you in every facet of your life. There will be no area of our life that will be conflict-free. In marriage, friendships, parenting, work, no one can say that they have never experienced irritation, frustration, or anger in each of these settings. Even in church, we're not free of this. Conflict is everywhere. And what it's rooted in is this very real spiritual war of passion taking place in our hearts. A war between the desire of our heart to follow our impulses and seek that in which we see pleasure and satisfaction, and desire to to lead a life marked by grace, shaped by a higher and greater pleasure that comes from doing the will of God and being part of His kingdom. And where does this war take place and play out? It takes place in our hearts and it plays out in our relationships. Paul Tripp puts it this way, the purpose of a war is to win, and right now there is a war for the rulership of our hearts. And that war will continue to rage until the enemy is defeated and we are ushered into the final kingdom. See, we're all made to be worshipers, and so we'll always find ourselves worshiping something and pursuing something. Romans 1.25 reads, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so in verse one, James is highlighting for us that our desires are battling within us. Our instinctive desire for selfish gain, for pleasure in this world, and anything that serves us best. And what inevitably happens when you put two people of this disposition together with sinful, selfish, self-centered desire is inevitably conflict. And so if sinful desire is the cause, quarreling and fights and conflict are the effect. Sinful desire leads to broken relationships. So verse two continues, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And I think as we look at this, the language of murder here might seem like hyperbole and there was likely no murder taking place in the church at the time of James' writing, but this is a direct reference to Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, 25, Matthew 5 and the righteous life that we are called to lead in relationship with one another. Because the effect on our hearts when they're ruled by desire or a craving for something created is twofold. It changes how we relate to God and it changes how we relate to one another. Paul Tripp again says that a desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. I'll say that again. A desire for even a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. You want something, but you can't have it, and so you kill and you covet, as James says. See, that ruling desire prevents you from looking at others as objects of your love, and instead we look at others as being in the way of what we want, or merely as a means of providing us with what we want. And so when you're stopped by someone from getting that thing that you want, or somebody gets in your way, your frustration in that moment says, I wish they hadn't done that. I wish they weren't there. Right now, my life would be easier without that person. And from that place, the jump to to murder and and coveting, as James describes, um, it doesn't seem quite so drastic. But this also alters our relationship to God, too. And we see this in verse 3. 
You do not, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, when our desires are driven by things in this world, our own advancement, our own accumulation of material things, our reputation, our recognition, we are making friends with the world and all that it has to offer rather than turning to God for our satisfaction and our sustenance. For affections are not for him, even our prayers will be self-centered. We'll either not go to him in prayer, or when we do, we'll be asking for things of this world. And so we do not receive because we're asking in the wrong way and for the wrong things. And in doing so, we're minimizing God to the role of a divine vending machine. What are we asking God for? Are we praying that his kingdom would come, or are we praying that God would just satisfy us by giving us what we've already decided we need? See, we forget all too often that God is not primarily in the business of meeting earthly needs. He often does and prays him for that, but the purposes of his kingdom are far greater. God is in the business of being God. So what do you want from him? And what way do you view the people that he has placed in your life? How joyfully do you serve them and their needs in the knowledge that God has placed them in your life for you to do exactly that? Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 that our prayer is to be your will, not ours, Lord. But friendship with the world says, my will be done, my name be made great. And it's here that we see that the pursuit of self leads to conflict and hostility towards others and towards God. And this is the point that James is making in verse four. So we see that this friendship with the world comes from our sinful desires. But now in verse four, we see what it equates to or, or where it really comes from. And James says it equates to spiritual adultery towards God. Our problem with conflict and how we relate to one another does not come primarily from us not loving others enough. The problem is that firstly, we don't love God enough. James holds no punches with this one. Um, throughout the letter so far, he's been referring to the church as his brothers. But here he says, you adulteresses. And this language is, is linked to the Old Testament where God likens his relationship with his chosen people to a marriage. In Jeremiah 3, verse 20, we see that when God's people forsake him in sin, it's a picture of spiritual unfaithfulness. And so when we pursue our own gain, our own selfish desires, or when something, of, something or someone of this world captures our affections so much that it rules our actions and our behaviors, we're attributing to those things what is rightfully God's. Just as when a spouse is unfaithful in marriage, they're withholding from their husband or wife love, faithfulness, and commitment that is rightfully theirs and giving it to someone else. Sinful desires are dangerous. And the more we follow them and are conformed to the patterns of this world, following the wisdom of this world and loving the ways of this world, the more we betray and cheat on our eternally, perfectly faithful God. See, if a married man chooses to sleep with a woman other than his wife, in that moment, both he and his actions are an enemy of that marriage and an enemy of his wife's good. And likewise, when we choose our way and follow our desires saying, my will be done, we stand as enemies of God. 
Now, I feel like this is one of the areas in Christian life where we've been a little blindsided, even in the church. One of the ways in which, sadly, I think we've been conformed to society around us rather than living lives of radical discipleship. Because even if we're not seeking the pleasures of this world in the form of, say, sexual immorality and impurity, we're still so quick to try and find little, little snippets of satisfaction in material possessions and in the comforts of this world, things that distract or provide us with momentary escape. Nice cars, bigger houses, new gadgets, better salaries, higher positions. We sell out so cheaply sometimes. Because when your eyes have been opened to the unsearchable riches in Christ, what truly does this world have to offer us? We have to ask ourselves, what difference is that new car going to make? What difference is that bigger house going to make? What difference is the aesthetic of my social media feed going to make? Again, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, even having these things is not sinful. But when our desire for these things or our pursuit for them creates, or sorry, when our pursuit of them dictates our life and actions, that is when we're making friendship with the world. When we stand before the King of heaven, who has lavished his love and his grace and his mercy on us, even when we are turned against him and dead in trespasses and sins, what difference will it make having had these things? Praise God, though, that these things, things of the world, all invariably, inevitably do bring disappointment. Because if they didn't, I think being as fickle as we are, we would be so easily satisfied in this world. See, whether the unfaithful husband is having a single affair or multiple, and how regularly or infrequently he cheats on his wife makes him no more or less of an adulterer. So even when we only sometimes live for what is best for us in the world, and when we want those things even in these seemingly small ways, in doing so, we're playing away from home on the God who is best for us in every way. And so James tells us we must repent, we must return to him, return to his grace and his riches. I want us to see what James does next here because I think it's easily missed. Um, Note that he doesn't continue to rebuke or try and coerce these believers into behaving differently. He doesn't try and change their behaviors himself, but instead he points them to a picture of the glorious, faithful, and perfect love of God. He reminds us of who we are. We are, by God's grace, those who have been chosen to be the objects of that glorious, faithful, and perfect love. Now, verse 5, as James does this, I think is probably um, represents one of the most misunderstood uh, characteristics of God. Even Oprah has weighed in on her thoughts on the jealousy of God. Um, I won't tell you what she said. She gets enough airtime already, but... Um, Many people, even Christians, struggle to understand or to reconcile a God who jealously yearns for us. But James here is echoing Exodus 20 and 34, where God tells his people that he is a jealous God. And I think what helps us to understand why this is actually a good thing is, again, considering this picture of an earthly marriage. I don't look at Sarah, my wife, and tell her that out of all the many women I love, I love her the most. (laughs) 
I, I don't think I'd want to stick around long enough to see the reaction. Um, but no, because based on the commitment and marriage vows that I have made to Sarah and that she has made to me, it is right that she should expect those things to belong exclusively to her. Given that Sarah and I have made those vows and that commitment to one another and to no one else, it is best for both of us in that relationship to pursue one another completely, to love one another exclusively, and to honor one another faithfully. So how much more is this the case, and does this apply to our relationship with God, with a God who loves us so purely and so perfectly that words can't even describe? God is jealous for our affections. God is jealous that we long for Him. Him being the all-good and wise God who made us and everything in this universe and continues to sustain it all and hold it in place knows what is best for us. He knows what we need, and He knows that in His perfection and in His immeasurable, insurpassable sufficiency that He is what we truly need. He is what's best for us. And because he loves us, he longs for and is jealous for our affections to be placed only in him so that we might be truly satisfied for his glory. What parent doesn't long for what is truly best for their child? It's a good thing that God is jealous for his people. This is no insecure jealousy based on a fear that there might actually be something out there that's better for us than God's but rather it's a secure and wise jealousy that seeks what is best for us and wants to guard us and our hearts from anything that would harm us. And so he does call us to run from the things of this world, the wisdom of this world, from friendship with this world, and find all that we truly need in him. Now let's just take a quick pause for a moment because up to this point, this this has been heavy and difficult passage. Um, some of it hasn't been easy listening, and it definitely calls for a lot of self-examination. But this next verse, I think, is, is just as important, if not more important, for us to hear. And I think this gives us the lens through which we need to consider the previous verses. Verse 5, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Church, this this battle, this war going on inside of us that James is speaking about, know this morning that you do not stand in this alone. James has just made us aware of what worldliness looks like, and he's held it up like one big uncomfortable mirror in front of us. And I think the temptation in that is to feel like this idea of friendship with God is too difficult, that we're not good enough, that our flesh is too weak, our sinful desires are too strong. But he gives more grace. This is exactly what Paul is speaking of in Romans 5 when he says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Praise God. Paul writes further in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he who calls you is faithful. The God who started a work of grace in us is by grace going to complete it. The grace that has saved us continues to save us daily, and it is by this grace that God produces faith in him that we need to to deny ourselves, deny our impulses, deny our desires, and run to friendship with him. What good news this is. We have a God who is our Father in heaven, who is tirelessly and endlessly on our side. He never falters 
and we can never outrun this greater measure of grace that he has for us. Alec Mateer writes, he's never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity has no limit. He gives more grace. As hard as it is to live this life that we're called to, we can know, as we saw in Hebrews this year, that we have a high priest in Jesus who is sympathetic to our weaknesses and a Father in heaven who will endlessly supply all that we need to obey his commands. See, our Lord walked this earth. He faced all of the temptations of the created world that we still face today. He knows the depth of this struggle, and there is grace for this battle. It is our very Lord who is battling on our behalf, and this grace is deeper than any war of passion going on in any one of our hearts this morning. His grace is greater. And so it's this grace that allows us to recognize that James 4 is speaking to us. It enables us to say, yes, Lord, I delight to be part of your kingdom, and sometimes my greatest joy is found in being part of your kingdom. But so often my desires lead me elsewhere. So often I become angry with others. So often I treat you and others in ways not worthy of your kingdom. And it's by his grace that we can turn and we can run to the open arms of his call to repent rather than running from him. So what are we to do with this then? Um, Read with me verses 7 to 10 here. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What James is instructing us to in the remaining verses of this chapter can be summarized by the words, submit yourselves to God, humble yourselves before the Lord. It is by his grace that we can recognize that this world holds no eternal satisfaction or good for us. Because friendship with the world, even with all its temporal comforts, satisfactions, and pleasures, will ultimately result in experiencing the opposition of God in eternity. And so for us to pursue friendship with God, we must submit to his authority. See in verse 7, James says, submit to God. If we want to experience a deeper relationship and friendship with God and all the joy and satisfaction that is to be found there, the path to this is through submission and obedience. And so James provides us with this list of commands relating to different areas of our life in which we are to submit to God. Verse seven tells us we're to resist the devil. This might sound obvious, but James is commanding the believers to stop resisting God and instead resist the devil. From the account of Adam and Eve in Genesis three, right through to us sitting here today, everyone throughout human history has been subject to the lies of the devil. And everyone has at some stage bought into these lies. This is the essence of the sin, trusting the devil and distrusting God. Sin is believing the lies of the devil that say we need certain things or people or status while disbelieving the prince of life who tells us that all we need is truly him. We're to actively resist these lies in the areas of our life where we're buying into them. If social media is a problem for you, resist. If spending online is a problem for you, resist. 
if what you're viewing on the internet is a problem for you, resist. We're called to be vigilant and be watchful from an enemy who will hold the pleasures of this world before us. And so we need to be aware of his tricks and aware of our own blind spots and weaknesses. Verse eight then reads, seek God repentantly. With this call to draw near to God, implying that that we've not been near to him or that we have turned away. This is a call to repent and return to our gracious Lord. Hebrews four reads, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When we approach this throne in repentance, it is this great measure of grace that once again meets us. The second half of verse eight then then shows us briefly just the holistic way in which we're to pursue purity in every aspect of our lives. Our pursuit of purity must be internal and external. And by God's grace, we are to be clean inside and out. So we must ask ourselves, where are we using our gifts, our resources, our ability, our time, our money, our headspace daily? Are we investing these things in the kingdom of God or are we investing them elsewhere? Does our answer show a heart that is still being ruled by a love for the created over the creator? In verse nine then, James tells us, treat sin seriously. This verse sounds pretty bleak as we read it, but if there is one part of this passage today that I would say the church today hasn't heard nearly enough, it's this, that sin is serious. It goes without saying that most of the world doesn't take sin seriously, but I wonder has that become the case for us too? And is this why we have found friendship with the world so appealing? James here is telling us that our sin should grieve us. It should reduce us to mourning and wailing and tears. So let me ask this this morning. When was the last time your sin grieved you? For those of us who are are Christians, we are no longer condemned by our sin, but we should hate sin, we should fear sin, and we should flee from sin, and it should grieve us because it takes for us to view sin as appalling as it is in the sight of God for us to even begin to get a glimpse of just how holy he is. Now, you may think for a minute that this seems unusual or contradictory to what scripture tells us about living lives marked by a deep sense of joy in all circumstances. But as we see with this verse in James, there are times when we should rightly stop being happy in the world. We need to stop being happy in sin We need to start weeping over dishonoring God by finding happiness in things. This is what this text is saying. We need to right now stop that happiness, stop that laughter that is found in sinful things and instead be brokenhearted over our sin. Because this is the pathway to the true joy that we read about so often in scripture. Second Corinthians seven says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. That is where joy is found. So when James says, stop rejoicing, weep, be brokenhearted, don't take joy anymore, he means start having a godly grief for your sin because godly grief leads to repentance, repentance leads to salvation, and salvation is full of joy. So even in this call to be broken, this call to weep, He is pursuing our joy for his glory. 
So are we all too casual? Are we all too satisfied? Have we lost the sense of the ugliness and disloyalty and damage of sin? Are we comfortable with entertaining those little sins in our life? Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so in this sense, we should be both simultaneously the saddest but most thankfully hopeful community in the world this morning. And then in verse 10, we see what happens when we humble ourselves in these ways. We are exalted and we are lifted up, and God is the one who does this by his grace in our humility. God welcomes the weak and the needy. He welcomes the poor. He welcomes us to come in, on, in, come in honesty and humility and says, ask and you shall receive. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And so if you want to experience deep relationship and joy with God and to know this peace in your family, your marriages, your friendships, come, repent, and humble yourself before him once again. Because the problem that we find in our relationships is not the sin in the world around us. It's the sin that's in our hearts. James tells us if we want to know these most precious experiences of the love of God, we must fight pride, seek humility, and cherish nearness and friendship with him above all else. Now, we've already seen a few weeks back, or really throughout the book of James, that this relationship between faith and works, and, and Alan a few weeks ago presented this in the shape of a formula um, which read, faith equals salvation plus works. And I just want to be really explicit once again, and hear me when I say that in no way is this passage suggesting that our efforts to follow these commands that James is outlining can earn our salvation or God's divine love as demonstrated in the death of Jesus. These things can never be earned. They're unconditional. They're freely available to anyone who comes to Jesus in faith because we are justified by his obedience and his sacrifice and not ours. And so if you've never done that this morning, please hear that the gift of salvation is freely available for you wherever you've come from, whatever situation you find yourself in, just as you are. It's as freely available today as it was for any of us here when we first received Jesus. But for those of us who have received that salvation, James also wants us to know that the fullest and sweetest experiences of God and the nearness of him and all the satisfaction and joy and peace that is to be found there will be enjoyed by those of us who commit to daily humbling ourselves and drawing near to him. And so finally, in verses 11 to 12, very briefly, we see that what James is describing as the, as the inevitable impact of being humbled before God. And here, James is closing the discussion that he began in chapter 3 when he first started speaking about the tongue. James, once again, presents a contrast. Worldly speech, on one hand, which discourages one another and dishonors God, and godly speech, on the other hand, which encourages one another and exalts God. This is the kind of speech that ought to characterize us as believers. Speech that is an outward display of a deep love of God and our neighbor. A love and desire for obedience out of response to an awareness of our sin, an awareness of the holiness of our God and the goodness of his grace. So may our words glorify God and point others to his truth. Because this is true wisdom. This is the speech of someone who has rejected the world and is in friendship with God. May our desires and actions do the same. 
And may we see potential areas of conflict in our lives as opportunities to speak truth and reflect the goodness and patience and forgiveness of Christ. James wants us to honor God by enjoying him and finding our satisfaction in him. Let's not settle for less than this and let's not sell ourselves and the gospel short. May we passionately seek the sweetness of his nearness that is ours to experience when we humble ourselves before him and submit to him. Let's pray.